The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. I need some good news. Uh, people love bad news. At least they seem to. They seem to like to pass it on to each other. Hence the 24-hour news cycle when you're pregnant and everybody tells you their horror stories instead of like all the wonderful things. So tell me some oh, good we, news. We did that last week, didn't we? A little bit. <laughs> oh, I was so sorry. <laughs> a little bit. So I don't know. Tell me some good news from your life. My super anxious cat is doing really well. Oh, good. And what, what, what was? What do you mean? What was? What was the trouble? Oh well, she's just always like hides and stuff, and she's starting to come out more. And I moved in with Faith at the beginning of the year, and she and okay, Faith so, are so friends. So she was a little unsettled for a while. Which yeah, faith? Anton. Okay, there's so many faiths. There's so many faiths. Yeah. But yeah, she's doing really well. And yeah, I see her face more often. Oh, she's good. the best. I will send you a picture. I would. Yeah. There, like there's a cat tag. <laughs> like, of course you are. Of course you will. <laughs> That's what I want. Anybody else have any, any good news that you want to pass along? I discovered the bookshop in town sidekick does like wine trivia nights and i went Ooh. to that yesterday and my friends and i got pretty much every single question wrong but it was a lovely time <laughs> and it was very fun to connect and just do something not at all school related that's cool yeah it was super fun would okay. recommend it was spooky themed yesterday so we nice. were like got to do like horror books it was very fun nice jeff i mean life's just good i'm not gonna lie okay i'm, I'm having a good time being alive i love that I suppose I should share some good news. Yeah. I haven't really, what you really got, Dave? thought Lead much about this. The, okay. I have a wonderful family. There you go. They make me happy. Love is all you all need. The time. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little critical because I love you. Are you ready? <laughs> the concept of news is meant for something that is new. Life is good. Well they is sucked. Your life they, they, new they, they sucked not long good? ago, new, but now they're really good. Yeah, I'm glad your family has improved, Dave. My yeah, my family, uh, you know, they they hid under the bed. They were very anxious, <laughs> <laughs> and just lately, they've been coming out to see me, <laughs> letting me scratch behind their, their ears. Yeah. <laughs> Are we gonna get pictures of them later too? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I guess my news is that my family is visiting for fall break. There you and, go. Um, Great. I'm rather fond of them. Your family uh, lives elsewhere in elsewhere. the, yes, in the uh, northeast somewhere, yeah. right? They do. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be nice to have them here in the not northeast yeah. or more midish, westish. Sure, sure. Oh. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's homecoming weekend. It is. Oh, yes. Goodness. Are we I going that... to the Are we going to the parade this afternoon? Yeah. I'm going to take a nap this afternoon. I didn't even know there was a parade. <laughs> and this then afternoon. we have a class. You should bring your kid to the parade. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like crowds. I'm, I mean, fair. I'm. Uh, if it wasn't for the fact that my daughter is in the parade and because she's in the high school band and all that kind of stuff, I probably wouldn't go. You're burying the lead on that one. You yeah, should have started yeah. with. I would go support your daughter in the parade. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, um, I'll go support your daughter in the parade. It's fine. What's her name? I'll yell it while the band's going by. <laughs> her, her name is Coraline. Go Coraline. Go Coraline. How many of these parades have you been to throughout your time in Iowa City? Oh, I don't go to all of them. No, no. Does You're she have to do spirited. like a winter parade? Those are the worst. I, can, the I don't know. The instrument just freezes to your face. It's miserable. Yeah. I was, <laughs> she, play, she plays the euphonium. Oh, oh nice. In the, in the band, in the marching band, she plays the trombone in the jazz band, and she plays the euphonium in the wind ensemble. This, this Coraline nice. sounds about as cool as they come. She is well, pretty cool. Well done, Coraline. She is pretty cool. 
I'll let her know that yeah, pa- we said that along. on a national. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be getting so many like followers Podcast. now. Yeah, oh, do you yeah. want to put her ad on yeah. the Coraline <laughs> <Coraline> fan page? <laughs> Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. <laughs> Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. To production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, I'm Dave Etler. Uh, good news, short coats I have with me today in the SCP studios and positively lovely people. Uh, her mere existence led the nations of the world to declare an end to all conflict. It's M4 Mallory Kalish. I'm an M3, but thank you very much. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this for like 20 minutes. About well, it's, I, I feel I, like an M4. Remember, how, remember so how I forgot to print out the show? <laughs> and I went to the- I'm really and glad that you made that resolution that was like no more edits. We're just going to go wrong. Oh, that went right out the window. <laughs> His optimism is the reason we will soon have a colony on Jupiter. It's M2 Jeff Goddard. That sounds accurate. Yeah. She's so nice that D. Antwords Ninja met her and now writes children's books. It's M2 Olivia Jenks. Dang, I'll take it. I mean, These are high that guy's praises. a crazy person, so you know. <laughs> He's writing wholesome kids books. Wholesome about. kids books now. Oh, because of me. Because of you. Yeah, all me. Sure. Very nice. Uh-huh. What did you say? What uh, did you say I mean, to him? I don't. I'd be nicer. Obviously. <laughs> it worked. Duh. There you go. That's <laughs> all it took. He was like, "You are right. I would be not. I don't know. <laughs> South African accent. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to. You know, I felt. I felt in planning for the show and thinking about the show this week. You know, we talk an awful lot about the problems in medicine and the problems in healthcare and the problems in society that tie into the problems in healthcare. I want to talk about positive things this week. Do let's. And I, you know, I admit it was it's a challenge, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm up for it. Just this past week, I mean, this is on the this is sort of a good news, bad news kind of situation, right? Just this past week, Politico reported that New York City is experiencing a big rise in tuberculosis cases, an increase of 20% from last year. Uh, I'm sorry, you said this is supposed to be a good news Well, we're getting there. Okay. It's driven by, I'm just giving the stakes, like why this is good news. You said this is good news, and then you said tuberculosis on the rise. (laughs) But Um, it's in New York, and Dave lives in the Midwest, so there's news here. It is uh, driven by an influx of immigrants from parts of the world uh, where TB is more prevalent, um, as well as a long and steady decrease in funding for public health in New York. But New York City isn't the only U.S. city that sees spikes in TB. Uh, Do a Google News search for TB and you'll see lots of very recent articles. Plus, of course, TB is a worldwide problem. Um, It's the number one cause of death in infectious diseases on the planet and has forever been so yeah like on occasion it might be bumped out by the the latest pandemic whatever that might be over the course of human history but for the vast majority of the years that humanity has been on this planet it has been tb that has killed the most of us yes as far as infectious disease goes it's it's so common we don't even really see it anymore in the western world we basically are just like you know la 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 but uh here's john green uh, of the famous Vlog Brothers YouTube channel, uh, speaking at the UN in September. Famously, Hank Green's brother. Yes. 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 
That's what he's most known for. Off-brand Hank Green. Off-brand Hank Green, yeah. We have had a disease that is is curable for 75 years that continues to kill 1.6 million people. And maybe it was possible to say in the 19th century that death from tuberculosis was caused by a bacterium called M. tuberculosis, but we can really no longer say that. Today we have to accept the reality that since we know how to kill that bacteria, we know how to cure this disease. Today we have to accept the reality that death from tuberculosis is caused by human-built systems, by human choice. We have chosen the world that we share today, and we can choose a better world. We are currently choosing a world where 1.6 million people die of tuberculosis, and I believe that with your help together working over the next decade, we will choose a world where no one dies of tuberculosis. Thank you. So one of the problems he's highlighting, I think, is that Johnson & Johnson has held the, pat- the patent for bedaquiline, a frontline treatment for TB. And, you know, these guys, John and his brother Hank, uh, Doctors Without Borders, Partners in Health, have all been in recent years drawing attention to Johnson, Johnson & Johnson's reluctance to make it more available. And it seems kind of like the sustained pressure has put some cracks in that wall. Isn't that right? Yeah. So Hank and John Green have been on YouTube, writing books, doing things out in the community for the last two decades and have gathered a bit of a following they called themselves nerd fighteria and they were like hey you know we should probably talk to johnson and johnson about this and so they did they called they posted tweets they put it all over social media and they put a lot of pressure on them and lo and behold instead of ever greening the patent on bedaquiline which they were entitled to do this july yeah right yeah entitled is a strong word but they certainly had the (laughs) legally legally allowed opportunity to re-up this patent they did not do so yeah. as of a few days ago that I know of, which was a surprise, but not a bad one. Like we were all pleasantly surprised, but very happy about the fact that Johnson Johnson listened. Yeah. So so they'll, they, it means that generic drug manufacturers can now make it without worrying about being sued as long as they're making high quality products is my understanding. So, yeah. So and they, and they, they have, speaking, they still have the patent. They will just not be enforcing it unless... People start making shitty copies of Jacqueline. Yeah. And, and historically, this means that prices are going to plummet, which when we're talking about a drug that is used specifically for multidrug resistant tuberculosis, yeah. this is going to mean probably thousands, tens of thousands of lives from this one decision. Yeah, It's entirely possible that we could be talking about hundreds of thousands of lives, but it, it really depends on how far we can go building off of this momentum. Fun fact. Fun is a strong word. Tuberculosis, specifically tuberculosis in patients with HIV, is the number one cause of death in South Africa, where I spent my summer. And it's so common that, you know, nobody wears masks in the hospital. It's like, yeah, they probably do. Mm. You know, but those are the two tests that we always do is HIV and and TB because odds are, you know. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to cast aspersions on Johnson & Johnson. The announcement does come after the company announced in July that it would supply bidacqualine at half price to the global drug facility, which is great. It's that that's the global drug facility was established by the stop TB partnership as well as others. But a lot of people said that really wasn't good enough. Not enough. Not enough. But like we said, they did step up to the plate. They did say that they were going to make this very positive step. Good for them. Yeah. I think it also kind of underlies too the importance of like, Oh, advocacy and yeah. speaking out and like yes john green and hank green have amazing followers and mm-hmm. it's amazing that those people stepped up and put pressure on johnson johnson but like i think as like 
medical students and listeners like i think there's ways to think about ways that we can make a difference too even if we're not like world leading experts in tuberculosis or mm-hmm. other things yep I, I think if somebody had asked me five years ago who i thought would be a world leading expert in tuberculosis in 2023 i would not have put the novelist <laughs> john green on my top five but here we are yeah um, here we are th- that said yeah i think the value of this story so I might be a John Green fan. Sorry, everybody out there. <laughs> we already know. Guy, you you like the Green Brothers. We all like the Green Brothers. Yeah, who, yeah. who wouldn't like I don't think anyone can dislike them, yeah, like to be honest. Green Brothers. Poo, poo. He has, he's written this Anthropocene Reviewed, and he's, you know, made different statements on, basically just talking about different aspects of life in the Anthropocene, which is the area of existence that humans have been in, right? Yeah. One of the things he talks about is despair. Now, despair is easy. It's an easy emotion because it's just everything is bad, Right. And it takes a little bit of complexity to accept that there is there's hope to be had. That hope, which is a hard emotion, is warranted, but it is nuanced. And I think that this is a, a wonderful case in point to that, that Johnson & Johnson was doing this thing that arguably was the reason why people were dying, right? Not nefarious, not like they're going out and hurting people. They feel like they can justify what they've done, right? Yeah. But at the same time, people are getting hurt from it. With a little bit of pressure and a little bit of community, we say, hey, we can do better and Johnson and Johnson says, okay, let's do better. And I think that they should be lauded for that. Yeah. I, because the only way that we're going to continue to see progress is to continue to have hope, is to say, look at the good steps that we're taking and praise those that are taking those steps. I, I think the good thing about understanding the motives, um, the true motives of anybody is to is that it allows us to see where we need to focus our attention in the future on a, in a given situation. So, yes, they've done a great thing. Um, yes, it was m- maybe not entirely driven by, you know, altruism. Um, but they did it. And they did it because people focused their attention on them. And that is, you know, that's how you get that's how you get things done, I guess, in the uh, in any world. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm comfortable saying that, like. I'm not as concerned about their motives as the fact that people are going to live because of this decision. You know, like they can have the world's worst motives. If people are alive today because of this, that's a good thing. You know, not, I mean, as an optimist, I'm probably going to ascribe the absolute best motives to them because I do that to everybody anyway, but I'm not an optimist. Generally speaking, I I mean, I'm, I'm not exactly a pessimist either. I guess what I like to do is to make sure that when I think about these things, I like to look at, as many sides of a situation as possible and to, so that because I want to understand what's going on. You know, when something terrible happens or when somebody does something terrible, I also want to know why did they do that thing? Um, when somebody does something good, I want to know why did they do that thing? I just think it, I don't know, for some reason it satisfies me to know um, the reasons for things rather than just what happened and whether it was good or bad. Yeah. There was another announcement by a multinational corporation, I'm not sure how to say this, Danaher, Donaher, and its subsidiary, Cepheid, where they promised that they will provide their test for multidrug-resistant TB at cost to the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. Can I clarify? So, by all means. this was the, the test that they're referring to. This was specifically the one, the, like, cheaper of the two. There's There's another that Tests for multi-drug resistance, I'm pretty sure. Certainly, there actually, there's more than just the two, but this one is for, for resistant TB. And okay. there is one that is, there's a, a specific term for it, but it's like X, XR, which is like 
extra resistant. Like, okay. it's, like it's multiple drugs that it's resistant to. And that one, which is the more expensive one, they have not lowered the price for. Okay. And so I think a natural reaction, a reasonable reaction would be like, well, what about those? And certainly we want them to continue to work on lowering that. That said, it's a good have, start. It is a good Something's start. Something's better yeah. than nothing. Something's is, always better than nothing. It's a phenomenal start to to convince a company to essentially like a net zero on a pro- on a product, yep. right? That that is a a beautiful thing that that we have worked toward, right? right. And I yeah. and I think that it will do a lot of good in the world um, to have that. So I don't know if we're within reach of I don't know if this brings us within reach of eradicating um tb i don't know if i I don't think so i don't think we're there um what does that look like for you dave what does it mean to be within reach of eradicating tb i i i don't know i don't think we're going to eradicate it as an illness but certainly we can treat people anybody who needs it yeah who needs that treatment we can treat them and they won't be so um likely to die from tb yeah so so you want to eradicate the mortality mm-hmm. recognizing I, well, well, that I'd like to, I would like to itself. eradicate the whole thing. I'm, I'm not going to be stingy <laughs> about my desires for eradication. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like it's so it's, it seems like that would be an impossible goal. I don't think that is a thing that can happen. Is it? I wonder, did somebody say that a hundred years ago about smallpox? Is smallpox truly eradicated? The smallpox last, is the in last, labs, but yeah, not. We, we have lab specimens which I would argue probably we shouldn't even have those. <laughs> but the last case of smallpox was a year. So the last natural case of smallpox was in 1978 in Somalia. Yeah. And then 1979, there was a, a lab accident and an, an individual had contracted. That is the last case in human history of somebody contracting smallpox. I guess I, I know that there are um, certain certain uh, characteristics of uh, transmissible mm. diseases that lend themselves better to eradication and like others that, doesn't have an animal reservoir yeah, right, if, you, right. if your only reservoir is humans those are the diseases that we can get rid of so you know polio yeah, so i guess i don't know pox. enough about tuberculosis to to know whether it's er- eradicatable in the in the um extreme sense i mean i don't even know in ter- even if it was which i'm not sure if it is if that would even be within reach not to be pessimistic on our optimism episode but like what is be a lot of the research and development for these drugs come from the west and now that it's not or not the west more developed countries mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think it's silly when we say the west but australia gets included like yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i think that fact that tuberculosis isn't a big issue here like made it worse in a lot of other parts of the world if you look at kind of the timeline of new tuberculosis drugs coming in the market between, from like 20 years from like 1960 to 1980 there was like tens or hundreds of new drugs and there wasn't a new drug until like 2011 after the 80s so once it no longer became an issue here yeah it was a problem and it was a problem in the 80s because of the hiv aids yes epidemic yeah. which had been around in other countries but suddenly it was our problem and so tuberculosis also became our problem yeah so once more research countries got rid of it it yeah. kind of like it made it worse for places that didn't have the resources that we do I will say, though, that was also the case with smallpox. The mm. last case of smallpox in the United States. Anybody want to hazard a guess? No. 1949. Oh, okay. Yeah. Decades before it had been yeah, eradicated yeah. in the rest of the world. So that is to say that if the world agrees to work on a problem together, it they can, can do be it. done. Yeah. Um, guinea worm was a huge problem in the 70s and 80s, right? 
I think we're down to single digits uh, contractions on the planet. And that's in large part due to our former president, Jimmy Carter, who has spent a good chunk of his life with this foundation trying to eradicate guinea worm. And they are almost there, literally single digits. Polio has gone from being, you know, about as common that it was just like a summertime disease. Like everybody just in the summertime, you get polio, right? To there are um, a few dozen cases a year. And like we've slowed down a little bit because of the COVID pandemic, but we're right there and eliminating polio. That, that will likely happen in our lifetimes. Mm. Now, if we decide to switch gears and go to tuberculosis, I hope so. We can eradicate. It's possible, right? To my knowledge, tuberculosis doesn't have animal reservoirs. I, a quick internet search says that there is bovine, um, uh, bovine tuberculosis, tuberculosis yeah. but I don't know that it that those two types of tuberculosis can transfer from transmit yeah, from sure. humans to animals. So, you know, if it's if the human tuberculosis can't be spread to any other species, then it yeah, it is possible. Shortcoats, we love to hear from you, no matter what. It's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. Do you, do you want to know one of the big reasons? And this is going back to that hope is nuanced and complicated and yeah. despair is easy. One of the big reasons why tuberculosis isn't on everybody's mind. It's getting more back to people's mind. Thank you, John Green. But the reason why it hasn't been over the last 20 years? Because it hasn't really been a problem for us. We have been thinking about, at least there are people who have been thinking about infectious diseases around the world and different ones pop up and make up, you know, their blips. But the big one over the last 20 years has been malaria mm. because the Gates Foundation exists. Again, not nefarious, but because they decided to focus on something and because they had a lot of money, guess where everybody else focused? They focused okay. where the money was, which is reasonable. It's understandable. And frankly, addressing malaria is more cost effective. Addressing tuberculosis is much more expensive and takes far fewer resources to either prevent or treat malaria than it does to prevent or treat tuberculosis. Why is that? Just by nature of the drugs that we have for them oh. or by nature of removing the pathogen. Like you can't take a mom away, right? Like you can't remove entire people out of a village that have tuberculosis, latent tuberculosis that may or may not come back later. But you can start eliminating mosquitoes in a community, right? Or at least put up mosquito nets or whatever. So in that sense, malaria is just a little bit cheaper to address. The Gates Foundation starts addressing it and everybody says, let's focus on that one. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just that has been the nature of where global infectious disease work has led us, especially nonprofit efforts. And research, that's a whole other thing, right? Because who's writing the grants? Often it's government. So that, that is certainly on us. Um, I guess the reason why I, I bring that up at all is to say that this is, like John Green says, this is not a, a lack of decisions right? People are making decisions. People have chosen to do certain things. And in a lot of the cases, those things are not bad things. It's prioritizing the good versus the better versus the best. And tuberculosis is an issue where it might be better to focus on it over other things, right? But I, I like to think that there are people in the world that are genuinely trying to make the world a better place. They're just focusing on a different issue than TB. Well, this all kinds of kind of ties into what I also wanted to talk about today, which was the story of the people who came up with using mRNA as a therapeutic, um, which I, I feel like has an interesting story to it. And one that for some reason I didn't realize until this week. And, you know, what happened this week was that they received the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology. Um, and so that's what got people talking about it again. Somehow I missed it a while back, but. I want to tell the story today 
It's about a Hungarian researcher named Katalin Kariko. She was a young doctoral student in Hungary in the 1970s when she first had the idea to use mRNA as a therapeutic technology. So most people listening to this podcast might have some idea of what mRNA is, but I'm going to go over it anyway because um, I felt like I learned more about it as a layperson this week than I had before. So messenger RNA, that's what mRNA stands for. It's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a message or maybe a recipe Um from cellular DNA to ribosomes. And, you know, you can think of ribosomes. I think of ribosomes as kind of the line cook and the DNA is maybe the chef, right? So the DNA, the chef writes this recipe, gives it to the ribosomes. Um, The ribosomes take that recipe and whip up, you know, a meal of proteins that the body needs to function. And, you know, this is the basis of how protein is manufactured in the body. It's basically how we are what we are, right? Does that make yeah. sense? Is that yeah. from a layperson's perspective? Does that make sense? So Carico's vision was that someday we would be able to synthesize mRNA that would instruct cells to make therapeutic proteins. But in the early 70s, when she thought about first thought of this, um, scientists didn't really know how to make RNA. Um, later, when she did her postdoc uh, at Temple University in the late 70s, they figured it out. But there was a problem. Anybody know what the problem is? Money? No. You got to get it into the cell and have it not break down. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, you know, the, you know, in, in, so in 1989, Carico joined the University of, Philadelphia, of Pennsylvania to continue her mRNA research. She was an adjunct professor at the time. She was on track to be a tenured full professor. But pretty soon people's interest in MRA began to subside. And the reason was mRNA was very unstable. You put it into mice and it pretty much falls apart immediately and I, I one might say by design right like it is intentional that we have a a molecule that is temporary in our body because we don't want it sending these messages too much right we don't want yeah. too many proteins being made that are of a specific types right and you know the other problem is that these pieces once they fell apart they became interesting to the immune system and led to a dangerous immune Ooh. reaction you know mice got really sick they would you know their hair would fall out and they they would stop eating and they would basically look like shit dumping and, on the mice <laughs> I mean, you know it's not their what fault they you know like i look like shit you know at least at least twice a day you know <laughs> I think mice are an interesting model. Like you give them like a, like you look at them cross-eyed and they just get cancer. I don't understand. <laughs> That's a weird model for human health, but okay. But nobody could, you know, they couldn't figure out how this could be, you know, how this situation could be, you know, changed. And so funding disappeared without support from industry and funding bodies and getting grants, um, papers, experiments approved. Um, you know, it was basically a constant struggle. And in 1995, after repeated grant rejections, UPenn demoted her and uh, told her she'd have to pay to keep using the lab. Ugh. Oof. Um, so in looking at the history of this situation, I'm not sure exactly where this fits in, but I, th- I think that she stayed at Penn because she was diagnosed with cancer and her husband was having visa issues. Can we just say f- cancer? Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm down with that. Tuberculosis and f- cancer. cancer. Yeah. She basically had to stay at UPenn. Um, which, you know, 
that might be a good thing because in 1997, she met Drew Weissman, an immunologist who is trying to use DNA to make a vaccine and who shared her curiosity about mRNA. So their first experiments were very discouraging. Still, mice got sick. They couldn't figure out why. I mean, mRNA is made by the body. Why are they getting sick when they put it in the body? But they kept tinkering with the molecular structure and they had a breakthrough when they real a breakthrough a breakthrough <laughs> when they realized after you know, basically what they did is they kept substituting out mRNA base pairs to see what happened to the immune response and they realized that almost any change they made made a smaller immune response hmm. so something was going on there it turns out that the body has a way around this problem it adds one molecule called pseudouridine to mRNA. So by adding pseudouridine, they produced RNA that was more stable and it did not set off the body's immune system. You know, they could use mRNA as a safe, programmable, therapeutic technology. So everybody celebrated. Everybody went, yay, we can use mRNA, right? This was what, in the 90s? This is the 90s, yeah. So I'm guessing there's more to this. No, no. Everybody was like, yawn. (laughs) Um, UPenn still did not support their work. Most journals wouldn't publish it. Um, they couldn't afford their lab fees, so Carrico finally was able to leave Penn in 1998. Um, Weissman stayed on at Penn, but struggled to convince others of mRNA's potential. People just didn't get it. People didn't understand, I guess, what we know now. Like, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm like, why the hell didn't you people get this? I mean, it's it seems like a very clear thing that if you can create whatever protein you want, you know. And I mean, it's done by like viruses and other things that like naturally infect humans, right? Like we weren't the first people to think about using. Yeah. But still, the viruses made people sick with their... Right, but like viruses can use RNA to like hide, to make the proteins and things that they want. So it makes sense that we could do that and like use that for good. Yeah. Well, took them a while. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. But in 2013, Carrico met the founder of German biotech firm BioNTech, which at this point is should be a little familiar to us. That one sounds familiar. And he recognized the value of modified mRNA. BioNTech offered her a job and she jumped at it. And in 2018, another familiar name, Pfizer, joined with BioNTech on a partnership to make a flu vaccine using mRNA. And then what happened soon after that? Do it. Does anybody remember? This is, does anybody remember what happened after that? Dave, you think my brain is working well right now? 2019, COVID-19 emerged. I mean, never heard of that. Never heard of that. <laughs> Within how many weeks from discovering this new virus was it sequenced and shared with the world? Not long. In like two weeks? Yeah, it yeah. was It was, it was very impressive. fast, as I recall. It was really impressive. And I, when you have the entire genome of a virus, yeah, I can see how one might think, huh, if I could program a protein yeah. using this information, yeah. that, that could go to our benefit. And BioNTech's CEO realized that they had this answer. That based on what emerged about the novel coronavirus, the target protein that they decided to force cells to make was the infamous spike protein on the outer surface of the virus. The the protein that is the mechanism that coronaviruses use to inject their viral payload into DNA, making them sick. Almost immediately, they were able to identify this way for them to program cells to create the spike protein to cause an immune response to prime the immune system to recognize COVID and the novel coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, which blocks, which would block the virus from 
using the spike and cells wouldn't be infected as readily. I have to say, the novelty has worn off. It's just a little <laughs> less novel these days. And so their work, along with Operation Warp Speed, which is the name of the funding, eff- funding effort that the Trump administration created or promulgated or whatever they did, led to massive clinical trials, right? I think they, the number I read was 40,000 people enrolled in this yeah. clinical trial, which showed the vaccine was, I think, surprisingly effective. I don't know much about vaccines in general and no, how effective no, they are. Nobody was anything less than floored. No, it was like, like 96% in the clinical trials and like 90% in the real world, ultimately yeah. preventing severe disease. Yeah, and which is like Insane. miraculous. Yeah. You know, and, and talking about the first strand, it was wasn't just severe disease it was any disease right like we it was miraculous how well this was working and and i think that's when most of us most of the rest of us who weren't you know researcher biomedical researchers and stuff started hearing about mrna yeah right the first mrna vaccine was approved on an emergency basis for covid19 proving carico and weissman's discoveries were revolutionary and of course moderna's vaccine was also mrna based i'm not really sure what the story you know how they got there as well pretty much at the same time and yeah as i said at the start just this past week carico and weissman received the nobel prize in physiology and medicine finally recognized for their work identifying and overcoming the barriers to safe mrna therapeutics saved millions of lives from covid19 Countless more applications to come. I feel like I've read about um, cancer, genetic diseases, basically any disease where the body maybe is unable to make a protein or that the course of the disease could be changed by the production of a protein or maybe even a protein that's not properly being manufactured and could be properly manufactured because with mRNA. All of those should be mRNA should be a great tool. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this. I know it's like it feels like it's poised to revolutionize medicine. And I'm just you know the reason why I wanted to tell the story was like this woman's a bad bitch. <laughs> well, and this all started from her PhD. Yeah. Like in the I 1970s, think that's so like cool. 50 45 years ago. I was 8 when she emigrated to the US, which <laughs> told you something. <laughs> Um, I mean, talk about persistence. Yeah. Well, and it just goes to show that, like, the work that we're doing as student researchers, as, like, students, as, you know, people who are interested in science, like, this stuff matters. Yeah. And, like, we are going to be the next generation that's coming up with these, like, super cool, crazy ideas. And so, like, don't undervalue yourself just because, you know, you feel like you're just sitting in a lab, like, failing and failing because, you know, 40 years later, yeah, Nobel I mean, Prize, you know? <laughs> every single person. Every, every single, single person. Right now, get, get a Nobel Prize. Congratulations now <laughs> on your future Nobel Prize. Thank We're you. We're proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Yeah, as I said, I hadn't really heard about this story before. Um, had you guys heard about this woman? And no, her, and I had not. Before? I had not. I mean, also, I, for some reason, I imagine Jeff did. Yeah. <laughs> my my undergraduate degree is in biotechnology. Yeah. My first semester in college, we were using mRNA technology uh, in bacteria. This is not. Yeah. This, is, this is why it was very surprising to me that everybody was like so up in arms in 2020. I was like, this is. You're talking about new. Like, I know this is the first time we've made a vaccine on it, but this technology is something that I was doing years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, 
I, I, sometimes, I, you know, when I learned about this story, to me, it's a good story. And, and it could be told better, I'm sure, than I just did. I think you did a great job. You did a great job. But, I, I, but... You have a soothing baritone. I, yes. <laughs> I get by. I mean, you know, my voice gets me by in a lot. L- listen to it all day. Got a voice for radio and a the, face, too. The number... The, the, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. So, you know, when they were like, we have a vaccine. 2020. 2020. It, November 2020. We have a vaccine. And, you know, I was like, Yahoo! But a significant portion of the world was like, that was quick. Interestingly enough, other models were not that far off, you know, but they used things like the adenovirus, things, ways to get the information into us that we felt were much more conventional. Well, we were used to them. Yeah. And so people felt more comfortable with them, even though they were ultimately less effective. They were something that we knew. And uh, let's be honest, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, new things are scary. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. I was thinking that it would have been interesting to see how people would reacted if this was the story that was told. Rather than like, oh, this was approved in yeah. less than a year. The whole right. trials right. were just like rushed through with emergency. Uh, yeah. I, just, like I mean, people, people really dig stories. Number one. That's one of the reasons I think this that that, that it could have been effective but also like i think we can all sort of relate to somebody struggling to make something happen yeah yeah yeah. and people not believing in them people not believing in them and all this kind of stuff and then in the end it turns out to be true i mean that's the basis for like 50 percent of movies (laughs) i mean you know to be fair that's the basis for a vast majority of medical breakthroughs they're not this is a conversation that we've had before on this podcast and we'll probably have again but Mavericks in all fields of science are often people that should not be listened to, Andrew Wakefield, and often people that should be listened to. I think that's what makes it so hard. It (laughs) is. It's exactly what makes it hard because when you have a novel idea, it will fundamentally change everything if it's right. And if it's wrong, you should not be listened to. Yeah. But how do you determine that? You can look at the data, but like it's sometimes it's kind of hard to make sense of it. Sometimes it's kind of hard to see the long term picture. Like nobody in the 1970s were thinking this is going to be how we're going to stop the next pandemic. They weren't. There was no way that they could conceptualize that yet. And yet here we are, you know. I don't know. It seems obvious to me. I mean, if I, <laughs> if I Dave would have just walked into a lab like, yeah, this is like so I'm in charge of the pen. Yeah. <laughs> Here's some money. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> uh, but yeah. I mean, probably like when she was going through all those difficulties with funding and get like and not being able to get research grants, all these things. Like people probably thought that she was on the other side of that spectrum, right? They thought that she was obsessed or crazy or like delusional in some Lily, way. Yeah. And now that we have time and perspective, we can like see the genius that it was. But I just like can't imagine that she just kept like the persistence for that is amazing. Especially yeah. not being able to get research dollars. Like it's so hard to do research without government backing. She's well, and the other interesting thing about this story is that ultimately it wasn't government backing; it was big pharma. Yeah, that it, you know, according to the story, anyway, seems to have you know come to her and our aid. Yeah, there was Operation Warp Speed, which certainly provided, I guess, the sort of last mile funding that was necessary to get it actually into people's arms in a timely fashion. But without you know, BioNTech being like hey this is interesting to us let's pursue this nobody else was going to do it yeah so i think that's kind of an interesting twist on the story too we vilify big pharma but turns out that they're they have a useful function as as i said last week and i will die on this hill sorry everybody 
there just really aren't that many villains. Everybody wants a villain, but yeah. people are nuanced. Organizations yeah. are nuanced. There is good and bad in all of us. True yeah. villains are hard to come by. True gods are also hard to come by. <laughs> I, I, as much as I think that we can rightly challenge the uh, effectiveness or the the success of any administration during the the um, pandemic at any point in the pandemic um warp speed worked yeah yeah it was uh, the public private partnership that brought us that vaccine those vaccines uh, in the timely fashion that it did saved lives yeah right yeah. um yeah i will be for personally i just remember the excitement that i felt you know after a year of you know Bad news after bad, bad news, news hiding, after, right. you know, like watching. Like, I remember sitting in my office in March of that year with the. Do you remember they had the. I think it was a John Hopkins map. Yes. Do you remember that map yep, with I all do. the big red circles that kept getting the larger and larger? Red. And I remember Kate coming into my office and looking at it and going, Holy shit, Dave, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I just looked like, you know, the world was ending based on that map and then when the this vaccine came out i remember being transported with elation I, well the it's only just way so I can, relieving yeah yeah, yeah. to oh. know that like that there is an end and that it doesn't you know it's not going to fizzle out because so many people died of it you know that it's that we're going to have a way to end it or at least temper it yeah, yeah. Through I mean, people were like throwing elbows to get access to that vaccine i remember calling I remember, like yes. every day being like do you have it do you have it do you have it, you have it? Like, i mean i'm not gonna lie i volunteered to get my vaccine yeah if you volunteered a certain number of hours they'd they'd give you the vaccine <laughs> i will say one of my biggest frustrations as somebody who is reasonably healthy you know yeah. working in healthcare worked in the hospital during throughout the entire pandemic but have i've always been kind of globally oriented just by nature of having family and friends around the globe i was pretty frustrated through the early months with the level of prioritization or deprioritization right so the idea that this 80 something year old dean at the college of medicine at stanford gets the vaccine early he's working at home he's not around patients he's not going to get sick yeah. he should have been very low as opposed to you know the 30 something year old nurse who is taking care of patients that have covid yeah. she probably should have been prioritized right well and even when we talk about that too like these vaccines required you know a pretty high level of like care i guess so that they wouldn't break down they needed to be you know in like negative 30 degrees celsius that's true it's hard to remember that the, the, the first vaccines were super delicate right yeah. and like so in order to have those kinds of machines, you have to, you know, you, you can't be a rural hospital. Rural hospitals don't have those kinds mm. of, of refrigerators and that kind of thing. And I think ultimately, like the more rural locations and, you know, lower resourced areas in the U.S., you know, probably should have been prioritized more than they were just because of the sheer amount of people, you know, that are going to end up at those hospitals. I mean, obviously, we do need to get 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 the vaccines to more populous areas and areas that do have resources but yeah i think that was one area that i felt a little conflicted on i, I got the the johnson and johnson one and i it was a deliberate choice and it wasn't because i had any kind of concern with the mrna technology i was thrilled with it like i said biotech by bi background i got it specifically because i wanted to be a part of the community that was creating some kind of confidence in it 
because that was the vaccine that had the greatest opportunity. At least initially, we thought that's the one that's going to be able to get to the rural poor. That's the one that's going to be able to get to places that don't have access to hospitals because it didn't need to be at negative 30 degrees. Right. That turned out that that one was particularly risky for people of menstruating ages. I mean, every one of them has like something, right? But that one, there was the deep vein thrombosis that, that they yeah. found in yeah. Germany, I believe. And so that ended up not being the safest vaccine for everybody, right? It's still a reasonable vaccine if you're over a certain age, but it ended up also being a little bit less effective, especially as the, vac- uh, the virus continued to mutate. But that said, at the beginning, when it first came out, I was all for it because of that reason, because yeah. this is the real chance of helping the people that need it most, the people that can't make it to the fancy centers that can get to negative 30 degrees Celsius or whatever. So so we had a show with Paul Offit, vaccine guru, researcher, public science educator on the show recently. He, Are was, you, he was a big influence on how I was looking at all of these vaccines throughout yeah. the pandemic, if I'm honest. He, <laughs> So our episode on YouTube <laughs> continues to draw comments, not all of them positive. Certainly, I would say 50-50 are like from angry anti-vax people Oof. and the other 50 are from people who are like, oh, I love Paul Offit. <laughs> I think it should be noted that Paul was very skeptical of warp speed early on in the pandemic. Yeah. And I think rightfully so, because we had never seen a vaccine that had skipped several steps of the the full FDA process, which was the point of the emergency use authorization. You're skipping several steps here. Not all of them, but you are skipping some. And to do it in six months. And it just seemed like you couldn't possibly make a good enough vaccine in that time frame. And then the data came out and uh, Paul changed his tune, which. And I think that's the the tenor of all of the negative comments on this video was, well, he said once that blah, 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 blah. It's realistic to be scared about that. I, like yeah. it's, it's realistic to have those fears. Yeah. I mean, he's a vaccinologist. He literally worked on the rotavirus vaccine. He's the reason that one of the vaccines that we give to children exists. He's looked at this data before. So he had prior beliefs that were rational and then allowed the data to to change Changes those beliefs. Right, right. Right. And I think that's that seems to be the funny thing about the comments is that, you know, he changed his mind. Yeah. He just changed it in a way that they didn't like they didn't like yeah and that they're still not willing to change their mind yeah i mean i've had to change my mind several times on these vaccines and including on the j and j run right like yeah. i was so so excited for that one to be the thing that we were going to get to sub-saharan africa that we we're going to get to india that we we're going to get to latin america and then it turns out it just didn't have the safety profile and it didn't have the effectiveness that we needed it to have i was jumping up and down extolling moderna and pfizer for their efforts to help people out around the world until India was going through their big wave in May 2021 and Moderna had the opportunity to release their patent and just let people, because it was already being manufactured in India, make their vaccines. And they said, no, we want to continue to make our billions of dollars. And then I was like, man, you know, like yeah. th- there's no true villain, but also like you're not exactly a hero right now. Right? <laughs> and the U.S. had this opportunity to say, hey, we're not going to enforce your patent. Sorry, but we didn't do that. We said, here's a drop in the bucket. Here's a few thousand yeah. vaccines, you know? So and we've all had to change our minds on this. And I think that frustrates a lot of people that, that turns out the world is nuanced. Like hope itself, science requires a lot of nuance. I think that's why I would have liked to have heard this story sooner. And science changes. Be- because, like well, as we learn more and more yeah, and more, you know, I just, it, it, and it really sort of illustrates that it, but it also, it puts a human face on the whole thing rather than, as you said, you know, oh, we have a vaccine and it's FDA approved and right. we rushed it through right. here for you. <laughs> um, 
you know, that's a harder story to sort of wrap your head around. And, and, I, and I think you did the right thing. Like, it's a beautiful idea to say, here is 50 years of somebody laboring and slaving and blood, sweat and tears into the efforts of trying to perfect this technology. This isn't something some guy came up with last week. Yeah. Know, this is a lifelong labor of love yeah. in right. science. It's a beautiful story. Well, that's our show. Mallory, Jeff, Olivia, thanks for being on the show with me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. And the good news is I'm remembering to thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week. If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Today's show is produced by your, yours truly. Uh, the show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.